Welcome back to the flip side, folks. Galen Clavio here along with Brian Moritz. We are back after our first end of first season hiatus and excited to start a second season of the flip side podcast. Brian, uh, great to see you. Great to talk to you again. It's been a while. It has been. Welcome back. Uh, welcome back to the country, uh, as we're going to talk about today um and uh so so yeah season season two is starting so we do we start a new number streak because we were at episode 16 when we left and left with our buffet strategy and i have a follow-up on that um so do we go to 17 do we start like s2 at uh, season two episode one yeah i, I think mean, we go i think we go to 0201 at this 0201 point. as the kids would do as the, yes. as, as the kids would do on the netflix so that's um, right so uh, we have a lot to catch up on. Like I said, we have some follow-up from my buffet strategy and my trip to Golden Corral from a few weeks ago. You <laughs> took a much better trip than I did uh, uh, going to Italy. I uh, recently went to North Carolina, so we, and we both traveled with our kids. So we can talk about our traveling with young ones and uh, the fun and the perils that 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 can bring um we'll, we'll try to mix some stuff in for the older folks too or yes. excuse or the i mean the younger folks the ones that don't have for the, kids and for the yeah. kids yes exactly yes and i have a couple reader uh elite couple by a couple i mean one reader, <laughs> reader question um uh but first did you want to why don't we do at you know season new season old traditions what is the craft brew du jour for uh for season two, episode one, we went local, hyper local today. We have a, a twenty-two ouncer of rooftop IPA by Bloomington Brewing Corporation. Ooh, uh, very nice. Good, good, a good brew. A, a mix of uh, four different types of malts and uh, Nugget Cascade and Mount Hood hops. So, all right, this is actually. I almost, I, I came real close to just uh, getting a glass. Of of wine because it is National Wine Day today. It is National Wine and Day, I, yeah. you know, I was ta- I was walking out of the grocery store with my wife, and I was like, "We got to go get some beer." And she's like, "Why don't you just drink wine?" And I was like, "I don't want the guys to make fun of me." So, uh, <laughs> but no, it's I actually I've been drinking nothing but wine the last two and a half weeks uh, with the Italy trip. So it, this is actually it's a nice nice change up. How about you? Excellent. I'm going. So we stocked up we were uh while you were in italy we were in north carolina for a long weekend and a wedding so we stocked up on some uh north carolina beer and so this week i have the cottontown lager from <laughs> deep river brewing company and they are based in johnson county north carolina and i believe that is in the the store i got it in it was a great beer store ferguson's bottles and taps which okay. is in Whitset, not far from greens right outside of greensboro oh yeah so, i know that area fairly well yeah this is a great Kind of a summer, t- really crisp, really good, clean summer uh, summer lager beer. Um, cool can design too. Um, we made a point to stock up on a lot of local Carolina beers while we were That's down good. there, and uh, yeah, I dropped some serious coin at uh, Ferguson a- a- at the beer store. And then our best alcohol purchase on the trip actually was uh, something that is not going to get open until a special occasion. We went to Mount Vernon on the way back, home yeah, Mount uh, George Washington's estate, and. They have a uh, George Washington's distillery there, and they brew. They make whiskey there according to his recipe, like in the <laughs> method and his exact recipe. It's unaged dry whiskey. It's clear whiskey, and uh, picked up a bottle of that. And uh, I'll be able to report back on this week this weekend on how that is on the original George Washington whiskey. Um, so, sounds stellar. Yes. Yes. So. Um, so yes, we have we we have some travel talk. Um, I do want to, and you can you can speak as much or as little as you want to this. I do want to uh, raise a glass in, in salute of Roger Dog. Um, oh, very sad news in, in your house this, mm-hmm. this, this past weekend with Roger Dog. Um, just want to say I never, obviously never met Roger Dog, but felt like I knew him through Instagram, through Facebook. Uh, he is the title of our 10th episode, Roger, Why Are You Licking the Floor?, <laughs> Which will go into the Hall of Fame, obviously, and uh, just seems as a just seemed seemed like I said like I said when I texted you over the weekend, unanimous first ballot Hall of Famer dog. So. He really was. No, he was. It was it was a very sad. It was very sad the way it all went down. Um, didn't get a chance to say goodbye to him in person. Had a had a. Uh, uh, not to get too graphic, but but basically uh, had a tumor rupture and and uh, that nobody knew about, and uh, had to be put to sleep. And fortunately, there was at least 
we had a dog sitter who was able to get him to the vet to at least have that happen. But, um, you know, had Roger for uh, almost eight years exactly. I adopted him uh, from the Miami Animal Shelter in 2008 in May, uh, mid-May. And, you know, I mean, he was um, he was just he was a great friend. I and mean, I that sounds funny or silly to say when you're talking about dogs but he really was he was he he acted like a human and he but he acted like a chill human like you know he would <laughs> when when i was upset he would come lay on my lap when um you know when when he was interested in something he would just come over and and just kind of poke his nose in and see what was going on but he was a very relaxed dog he was an easygoing dog he was a very empathetic dog and uh, I miss him a lot. It's been a rough, rough few days since I got back. And you know, it's uh, it's it's the it's the downside of of having pets is that they don't last forever. And it's always difficult when when they go. You know, it's particularly difficult when it's a, when it's a, a pet that you've become really emotionally attached to. And that certainly was the case with me and Roger. And yeah, I mean, first ballot Hall of Famer and, and kind of, you know, belongs in that kind of, you know, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, uh, uh, Stan Musial tier of Hall of Fame dogs. Um, and pretty much everybody that ever met him, I think, would agree with that. So Absolutely. Um, anyway, so, yeah, no, I appreciate it. And thanks to uh, for all of you who expressed your uh, condolences and concerns. It's, uh, it's much appreciated. So, so we'll move on. Um... Uh, from, from that and kind of talk about our travels this week. We have one. Actually, why don't we do the, uh, the reader question first, if we can kind of hit that quick and then talk about, well. talk about our traveling. So as always, uh, for listeners to the flip side, if you have a topic or a question that you would like me and Galen to talk about, we guarantee we will spend at least one minute on anything you throw at us. Even if we don't like the question. Even if we have no idea what we're talking about, we will get, we will spend one minute on it. Um, minimum. Um, you can always tweet us or uh, hit, hit us up at the uh, hashtag FlipsidePod. Uh, tonight, tonight's question comes from Matt Moran, uh, one of my students at SUNY Oswego. Very, very good young broadcaster, young sports reporter. Um, like probably his jib already. Probably many topics you could discuss with what's going on at One Bill's Drive. Oh, Jesus Christ. But what about the new media policy? So this is the, the story that kind of leaked out yesterday with uh, the beginning of OTAs. And the Bills have new media guidelines which basically say that reporter, the, the, the OTA practices are open, but reporters can't describe what's going on on the field. So if a guy drops a pass, you can't say he dropped a pass. If there's an interception, you can't say that there was an interception. You basically can watch, but you can't live tweet and report what's going on. Like only inf- And there are other parts of it, like only uh, injury information can come from like Rex Ryan or the PR staff. I think even, I, I forget, but like, incredibly ridiculously restrictive um i wrote a blog about this today i have i have some thoughts but i'm interested in your take uh on on the bill on the policy maybe the bill specifically and anything kind of like this this is not strange to the nfl or to a lot of sports coverage now um so what's your thought on it I guess I have two thoughts. Um, the The proper response is this is stupid. It's it's more, you know, Im- imperial um, media handling by by professional sports teams, particularly NFL teams. They don't all do this, but they all want to do it, even if they won't admit it. And uh, you know, it, <laughs> It's it's certainly something that the Bills should be chastised for. It's certainly something that, um, you know, the league should be chastised for allowing. I've, I'm, you know, I'm, I'll be honest. I'm getting to the point, particularly with the NFL, and particularly when you put this in light of the the news that broke a couple of days ago regarding the uh, the funding issue with the concussion study and, yep. and the way that the NFL has handled all of that. And it's just like, you know, um, I, I honestly think that when I, when I hear about these things, like what's happening with the Bills, then I look at the, the still very, like, almost overly polite way in which most of these teams and the league as a whole are covered by the people that, that uh, are assigned to do so. And it makes me think, 
you know, maybe it's time for a sea change. Like, um, the, the professional coverage, da-da-da-da, has been going on for a while, and it's basically yielded nothing but more and more restrictions of access and restrictions of, of approach. And it's like, you know, uh, maybe it's just time to go to the uh, the English model and the European model of, of coverage, where the team is the adversary, the media is, is there to cover it in a way that's going to generate interest and also look for news, um, you know, and if, if they want to play hardball, then you know what, let's just go full hardball on things. Let's, let's not, uh, let's not just be, um, let, let's not just allow those sorts of, uh, of regulations to, to run roughshod because I'll tell you what, if everybody at Bill's practice wrote, uh, exactly like, like dot for dot, what was going on on the practice field? What are they going to do? Kick everybody out? Like, like restrict practice? Like, well, okay, bet you're back to square one. What the hell is the point of an open practice if you can't write about anything that happened in the open practice? That's like, you know, here's here, kid. You know, here's a bucket of Halloween candy, but you can't open anything that's in a wrapper. Like, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, 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 it's like, what's the point? Right. Yeah. I um. So I, I do have a question. I have my thoughts, but. Uh, I'm not super familiar with the European and kind of English model of sports coverage. And what my understanding of it is very old. How much of sports journalism there is uh, interviews with players and coaches? Because my, my older understanding was it was a lot more of a, almost like a theater critic approach. Where it was yeah, a lot, it is. Okay, it's a lot less interview yeah. post game and a lot more kind I mean, of that column based. It's, well, you know, yes, the, maybe. The, the, yeah, basically. I mean, look, the. The idea of player availability after games or coaches – I mean, there's a there's a coach press conference after the game, but it's in a scrum, and that's basically it. And the idea of having player availability, it's very minor. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're just – you're not going to get – you don't get the, the huge amounts of, of, you know, access, quote-unquote, that – you you get with the you know the with the way that things work uh, here in the US but you know what what you do get though is i think a lot more critical coverage of the way that the teams and the sports are are actually being executed both in terms of their um the the on field or on court things and also in terms of the way that they're running themselves from a business perspective you know i mean there you do lose uh in many cases the the individualized access that you get with players. And that's something that's very much prized here in the U S I get that. But on the flip side, um, there doesn't seem to be any less interest in the sport on behalf of the people that are following the media coverage. It's a lot, it's, it's more gossipy. It's more rumor based because you don't have as many solid sources within organizations, but, but, but by the same token, it, uh, it's a lot more straightforward and, and there's certainly not the, you know the constant bending back of of the the privileges of the press as we're seeing here in the United States because those privileges just don't really they never really existed to any large degree in those environments. Interesting, because that's kind of where my you know not to again to get too far on the day job, but this is kind of where my research is going into more of this this idea of access in sports journalism. Um, and I just you know it, it it's interesting just you know. You know, as I wrote today, the Bills are idiots. We know that. Like, that's a stupid policy. It it, it makes no real logical sense, um, especially coming from a team that hasn't made the playoffs in 16 years. So it's not like you're kind of coming from any position of power. Um, it is funny. I do kind of. I haven't seen this anywhere, but I feel like this is this is again another EJ Manuel. I can blame EJ Manuel for this because <laughs> last year at training camp, it's a very like well known. Uh, incident in, the, in in the Bills world, EJ Manuel, when he was still could have been the starter, this was before Tyrod Taylor took the job, and they still thought they were trying to claim EJ Manuel could be a starter at training camp. He put one into the hospitality tent at St. John Fisher College, That's and right. obviously that became a big thing. And I feel like this story, this policy, is kind of a a r- long game reaction to that. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it is interesting because you think, especially in the U.S., and you know, you've you've researched, done, you've read this stuff as much as I have. You know, historically, the the, the sports journalism, sports team relationship is very symbiotic and very very close. And it goes, you know, that goes back to the to the beginnings of sports journalism, and it's ebbed and flowed, especially in recent years. You know, and, my, and the point I I made in my piece that I wrote today on it is just, you know, the bills are wrong, but I I just I often wonder. 
what the real journalism news work value of tweeting out results of I o, you know play by play OTA training camp practice is. I just I I don't know. Well, okay. I, I mean I, I mean I get it. I, I I get that it's popular. I get that it that people want to hear it, that people want to read this stuff that it gets clicks that it gets shares and that you know news organizations cannot thumb their nose at that. I get that. But I don't know. And, you know, again, and as I wrote in the piece, it's very—it's my aspirational idea talking, moving beyond that. But I just—I just wonder, like, like, like are we really going to be fighting over over being able to say who dropped the pass at OTAs? Really? Um, well, look, I think I think the issue is, and this doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I got in the car on what was it? I guess it would have been Monday morning. I had to drive up to my mom's house, a couple hours away, and. You know, I, I I turn on the radio, uh, the 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 ESPN radio station, thinking I'm gonna like catch some Indy 500 talk or whatever, and they're talking about the the NFL, mm-hmm. and it's like it's it's May 20 whatever it was 22nd 23rd uh, on that day. It's like there's nothing going on with the NFL. They're talking about like the Patriots' schedule. This is an Indianapolis, <laughs> uh, you know, sports talk show. And they're talking about the Patriots' schedule. And it's like, what's happened, I feel like, is we've so commodified everything related to NFL news. Like, whether it's schedule talk or OTA talk or injury or whatever, like fantasy. Everything is so has, – has become, like, so commodified and, and, and modular that – we actually have seen the media create the environment where that stuff does maintain an audience that you have to continue to feed. And that's, it's a very strange sort of thing. If you think about it, like the idea that we're, we're really at that stage where people's approaches to things uh, from a coverage perspective are, you know, I, I have to use every single part of the Buffalo when it comes to NFL, because if I don't, someone else will. And that might mean that people go and get their news from that person or trust them slightly more. I think there's bigger issues with that sort of mentality than anything else. But I I think that that's what, that's what we're seeing that as the, the locus of this particular approach. It's this idea that, well, if I don't do this, some competitor either on the mainstream level or on the internet level is going to ace me out. And that might cause me to lose some people, which I, you know, I just, I don't know if I agree with that, but I think that's where it comes from. Um, Absolutely. I agree with it. You know, you can't get off the hamster wheel because all it takes is one, one reporter at one little outlet online to start posting all this, all this. um, I, 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 you know, I, I I, I get the mentality. I get, I just, I guess I I just don't, I, I don't agree with the, I don't agree with it. I think it's a, that's a strategy born from fear rather than born from strategy. Yes, I agree, but I still think that that makes it's still real, regardless of whether I agree with that or not. It's still, I think, what drives a lot of it. But anyway, good discussion on that. Thank you, Matt, for that question. We have one quick, one more quick question before we get to travel talk, and it's uh, from our from friend of this program, Matthew Zimmerman. Uh, it's been two. It's so this. I'm reading this directly. I'm, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking at it right now. All right. It's been two years. Is Galen Claviel yet working on the follow up to Chrysalis? Hashtag play computer love. Yeah. Well, we're not. We're not going to play that on the on the show. But um, that was the, so. That was the last album that I put out. Okay. Uh, which uh, did you know that I had an album out? I did. I actually did know that. Yeah. You, um, you tweeted or mentioned it somewhat sometime. That's right. Yeah. So it's up on Spotify if anybody wants to listen to it. There's actually that's, a couple That's going that's going in the show notes for that. Are you kidding? Oh yeah, no, no. Pie, <laughs> pie, put that in there, please. I could use the I could use the uh the half a cent I get for every song play, you know. Um <laughs> uh, the answer is not really. I, I have been busy the last couple of years, which is why we haven't heard much new stuff forthcoming. Um, I'm actually in the process of kind of rebuilding my studio and I haven't had the, really the opportunity to do much recording. Okay. There have been some things written. There will be a lot more written, uh, when the studio gets built and I've got a space to do things in, but, uh, you know, I, I, I get, I start getting the itch every now and again. Um, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping by sometime, maybe, maybe spring of 2017, 
will have a new album out. That's my right. hope. We'll that, see what happens, but that's my hope. We're going to see, you know, what Bob Rock has to say in the studio and all this and, you know, <laughs> a lot of that. By the way, um, my daughter would love this album because they were learning about butterflies for about a month and a half in kindergarten, and she was all about chrysalises. Oh, yes. So she's in. So, all right, this is definitely, we have it. It's going in show notes, which will be at sportsmediaguide.com. Awesome. Um, you, you went to Italy. You best have definitely had the best, uh, you know, um, again, news that you received, notwithstanding the best two, pretty good two weeks. Yeah. Was there, so here, so here's the question I think the internet wants to know. Is there anything that in Italy that Eris was impressed by? <laughs> okay. So for those who haven't been following on the hashtag, which unless you're following me on Instagram, you probably wouldn't have seen, uh, the first day we were there. Uh, my wife did not get any sleep on the plane because Eris, my daughter, slept on my wife the whole way over. So it was great because yeah. my, my daughter, who's 10 months old, got seven hours of sleep on the plane, which oh, is crazy, awesome. which is yeah, yeah. nuts. But my wife basically got like an hour. And so um, what happened was I, I was like, you know, what, you know, Katie, go ahead and take a nap. I'll take I'll take the baby out and we'll walk around. So we were walking around and walking around like the forum and, and the Coliseum, which are very close to each other. And I take a selfie of me and the baby in front of the Coliseum. And she's I, I looked at it when I got back to the apartment and she's just got got kind of this blase look on her face like eh, whatever. And, and, you know, I, I, I thought that was a funny picture and I just happened to think of the heiress is not impressed, uh, hashtag, which is kind of a takeoff of the Michaela is not impressed hashtag from a while back. Um, but anyway, um, as it turned out, as we would take pictures in front of like really cool things, she would continue to have this kind of blase look on her face. Now that didn't happen all the time. There's actually a lot of pictures where she's like really giddy and excited, <laughs> but I, I was self-selecting the pictures that uh, showed her as not being terribly impressed. But yes, she was very impressed with the food. Oh, uh, like uh, she's just at the point where she's eating solid food a little bit. And so we would uh, go to restaurants and she would sit through, you know, the typical two hour Italian dinner, uh, and you know, we would feed her little pieces of bread soaked in broth or soaked in tomato sauce or whatever. And that, that was great. Um, she, uh, she was really impressed with the lemon tour that we did in Amalfi. Okay. Where, uh, so, uh, so the Amalfi coast, the, be- the best lemons in the world are grown there. And then literally huh. like they're, they are the size of your fist. Um, and they're, they're, remarkably flavorful and so we took a tour of a um of a lemon grove an organic lemon grove which um the you know it's actually a pretty cool story the the guy who runs it it's like he's like sixth generation um lemon farmer he was an accountant uh and then he kind of got talked into coming back and doing this as as uh because his father was getting ready to retire and so they they you know they we did on this this whole walking tour of this terraced lemon grove and um, you know, she actually enjoyed the lemons. Like we, we were feeding her little pieces of lemon and she was like, she wasn't like reacting negatively or anything, <laughs> but she really enjoyed that. There were a couple of other things she really enjoyed. It was just, it was funny though. Like, you know, how nonplussed she would look at certain times. Right. So, um, so we're in Italy and you guys went all the way all around, right? N- not all around. So okay. what we did was we, we, we flew in and we were in Rome for three days because there were some we we did the, we did a trip to Italy three years ago and we spent four days in Rome and there were a few things that we missed out on, so we were in Rome for three days and we went to the Vatican which we didn't get a chance to do last time and we went to um, a different part of the Forum complex which we hadn't been to and we we walked around went to some fountains had some food, then we rented a car, and we drove to the Amalfi Coast which the the Amalfi Coast for those who aren't familiar. You know, Rome is kind of in the middle of Italy on like close to one close to the uh the Tyrrhenian Sea. And if you drive about, you know, 2 hours south, two and a half hours south, you're in Naples. And about an hour south of that is the Amalfi Coast. And the Amalfi Coast is this craggy shoreline that has all of these little towns um, and it's it was once a famous merchant republic back in like the the 12th century um, 
and it's you know it's just a beautiful beautiful place the climate is is wonderful it's it's you got mountains and then you've got the sea and and everything is just kind of like straight down from one to the other but uh, beautiful scenery so we rented a car and we drove down there and it's interesting that was that was probably the most eye opening aspect of of the trip because driving in Italy anyway is kind of a little bit crazy. All right. Driving on the Amalfi Coast, if you look up this road on the internet, uh, it is one of the most uh, challenging roads to drive. Not just because the road is incredibly narrow and you're literally right along the coastline. Like many places, there's just a fence between you and about a 150-foot drop to the ocean. Um, but it's also a road that is constantly clogged with huge tour buses because this is a very famous area that people go to and so you're driving along and you know and suddenly you look up and there's a a tour bus that's you know basically stuck at a core at a curve and everybody has to back up or squeeze against the cliff Uh, it's a very different style of driving it uh i'm glad we rented a car because we were able to get to places we wouldn't have been able to otherwise i'm not glad we rented a car because i was never able to fully relax on the whole trip because i knew Every night that I went to bed, I knew in the morning I was going to have to get up and drive somewhere, and that was it was kind of petrifying. It's that sort of driving. Okay, so I mean, it, it, you know, having never been to Italy, we've always t- thought about going, you know, like wanted to go, and like we're going to go for our honeymoon, then we're going to go for our fifth anniversary, and you know, life gets in the way and all that. It, it really does seem like all like the, the the cliche things you hear about Italy are true, like okay. the food, the driving, the cars. Um, what's I I don't know what's maybe is there a misconception or something that people think about Italy vacationing in Italy or being in Italy that's actually not true or as good or as memorable? Um, because the food's as good as advertised, right? Oh God, the food is is ungodly. It's it's. Uh, I mean, it really it's amazing. You know, and, and the and the great thing about Italy is that when you do travel around, every region has its own delicacy that you can take advantage of. I mean, in Rome. You know, they've got very basic pasta dishes that are just, you know, dynamite. And then where we were in the Amalfi Coast, um, the seafood is just incredible. I, I had more different preparations of octopus than I've ever had in my life. And it was all just amazingly delicious. They have, you know, clams and mussels and, and all these different types of seafood that go along with their pasta down there. They have lemon, at a lemon ravioli, uh, which was hard to describe it was that good um so no you know all of those things are true the biggest things about italy i guess that are misconceptions um you know what gosh i don't know it's most of what you hear about going to italy is pretty much straightforward like the people are really friendly uh they love babies by the way they okay they, they we we would walk into restaurants and the staff would go wild, uh, like cause, <laughs> cause, because we had a, a an infant with us basically, and they would come over and they would play with her while we ate, and they would like in some places they'd pick her up and take her with them like to different parts of the restaurant. <laughs> I mean, it was really really remarkable. But no, people the people are friendly. It's not that hard to get around. Um, it's not terribly expensive. I think the most we spent on a meal, and we tend to eat pretty large while we're uh, while we're out i think the most we spent on a meal was like 120 american dollars oh my goodness uh i mean you know and that then we had to really like go hardcore like get two appetizers and two preemies and a secondi and, and a bottle of wine i mean we had to really like go out of our way to get to that point um you know the, the I, I i will say this i think the biggest mis it's not really a misconception but i think that people tend to cheat themselves out of the real the molto italiano experience like the the real italian experience because they tend to stay in rome which is rome's great but rome is is both kind of a an anachronistically historical city because you know you're walking down the street and you look up and the you know the coliseum is there and then you walk down another street and you know the pantheon is sitting there um you know so you go to rome you go to florence you go to you go to venice i, I don't think you're getting a sense of like the what's under the fingernails of Italy, uh, so to speak. And, you know, I, I think the, when we went three years ago, we did like a three week tour and the biggest eye opener for my wife who had been to Italy a couple of times before, but had only been to Rome was when we went to Naples and Naples is like, um, Italy exposed. Like it is, it is 
there's nothing in English. There's like you're walking like the the alleys are the streets, and you know it's like packed with people, and then you've got motor scooters zipping like right next to you, um, just at random intervals, like stuff like that. Uh, and Amalfi's kind of like that. Like it's still it's somewhat more tourist oriented, but it is. Um, it is still very much in the heart of, of like like traditional Italy, and I think that that's really cool. And having traveled to a couple of other countries, you don't really always get that experience. Like you know, you really you have to go far off the beaten path to get that sort of experience in a lot of places. And you know, I don't think you have to do that to to the same degree in Italy. Cool. I, I just think it's super cool that you guys took Eris too, because she's ten months old. Yeah. Um. I mean, I, I you know we travel with, with with our daughter, and she's five and a half now. And uh, but we but we've always tra- we always travel with her. And I just think you know it's super cool. You know, I mean, it, it, it's funny because like you know, obviously she's not going to remember going to Italy, but she has that experience, and she'll have the pictures oh, and, yeah. and, and, and 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 that and that thing. And you want to share that with, with with you. I mean, not to get too far down the parenting rabbit hole, but you want but you know you want to share that with them. You know, even at, at that young age, you want them to have those experiences and and, and, and to see that 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 kind of cool thing. And it's got to be awesome for you guys to see like these random waiters and waitstaffs in Italy just going crazy over your kid. I mean, that's such a, such a great feeling. I'm so cool. It was so cool to see you guys doing that with, with well, her. You know, I've never been a subscriber. And now that I, now that I am a parent, I'm, I feel even more strongly about this. I've never been a subscriber to the idea that, that kids don't get anything out of, out of travel when they're that young. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, Will she have conscious memories of going? Yeah, probably not. But um, watching her observe and interact with her surroundings while we were there and interact with the people while we were there, I mean, I really do believe that that will have a long-term positive impact on her. Because, you know, even if she can't, you know, make a conscious connection with it, she'll be able in her mind to make connections to the things that she absorbed while she was there. And I mean, we saw right. some, we saw some amazing things and she saw most of them. Like we did, we drove to Pompeii. That was one of the things we didn't get to go see three years ago. We went to Pompeii. We spent a solid three and a half hours and we, you know, we would, we didn't bring a stroller. We would strap her to w- one or the other of us and in the front so mm-hmm. that she could see everything that was going on. And she was, you know, actively looking around and looking at everything and waving at people and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, we did that all over the place. And I really think that that will, that will be something that is, uh, that is a real positive mental developer and emotional developer for her as time goes by. So, oh. I don't have any. I don't have any proof of that. I just believe that. No, absolutely. And, you know, there's something to be said for the joy in the moment too. You know, like she's nine months old and like she's happy there and seeing this cool stuff. That's that's in it too. Like we took our daughter to Disney when she was three and a half. So two years two years ago this week actually. And does she remember it? You know, a little bit. You know, she's you know we have pictures and show her. So she you know you know it's does she really remember it or does she remember it from pictures? But I know that she had the time of her life at that time. And so there's something, there's just something very, very, very awesome about that. Um, so while you were tooling, tooling around the coast of Italy, we yeah. were driving, we were driving through um, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and stopping at all the weird roadside attractions that you can think of, including the, one of the coolest things we've ever seen. Have you ever, I know you probably saw it on my, on, on my social media, but before I, had you ever heard of Foamhenge? No, but I I did see this on your social media. Yes, I yes, was so, I was so, I was in, intrigued. Yeah, so Foamhenge. So we were we were driving down my uh, my wife's niece. So my niece too got married down in outside of Greensboro, North Carolina, this past weekend. And we went down and we drove down. So from upstate New York, it was about a twelve hour drive. And so we were making it all in one day. And we had nothing to be. It was like Thursday. We were driving down. Friday was the welcome dinner. The wedding was Saturday. So we had no. No, we weren't on any kind of strict schedule or anything. We had to be there. So we decided, uh, my wife decided on the way down, let's Google all the weird, crazy, w- just weird roadside attraction stuff that you can find. And let's stop. If it sounds cool and we can get to it, let's stop because why not? So we stopped at Reptiland, this little zoo that has dinosaurs and, and whatnot. Uh, what else? Where else did we stop? A um, few other places. And my wife found this, this, this heading for Foamhenge. Like, what's Foamhenge? It's a, it's a Stonehenge replica made of styrofoam. 
okay, we're, we're doing this. Like, there's no doubt. So we get out. It was off of 81 uh, Virginia, not far from Roanoke. So we go down the side road, and we're driving on this road. And the first thing you pass on, on the road is this, like, old junk house with, like, a junkyard driveway on the right. And there's all these, like, movie-sized props of, like, dinosaurs and cars and, uh, like, I think a UFO or something weird. We're like, okay, this is getting cool. And we keep driving on the road. There's a left – on the left-hand side, they're, like, building this weird dinosaur attraction. So there's, like, a house, a trailer, construction trailer, and a triceratops. <laughs> Obviously not real, but uh, you know we're like okay, this is getting good. And then it's like this: you just pull off the side of the road on a picket fence. You walk uh, walk into a field, this this field that's like half tall grass, half clay. And then you turn, you go up a hill, and there is an actual, honest to god, life size, full scale replica of Stonehenge made out of styrofoam. So, you know, you, you mentioned, I didn't realize where this was. You mentioned it was near Roanoke, which I used to live in Roanoke. Okay. Uh, for, you know, like, not that long. It was like six months. I was at a job where the, the team went bankrupt. Um, and I was thinking, why would I have never gone to see this? And actually, it turns out it was built after I left. Yeah. I, I lived there in 02, and it was built in 04. But, yeah. Um, um, yeah, it's just this, you know, there's this sign up front, you know, the the real Stonehenge, you know, the real Stonehenge was built for educational purposes. Blah 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 blah. This one was built by five Mexicans and one crazy white guy for educational purposes. <laughs> and it is, it is actually set up like the scale and model of Stonehenge. And they they have the two th- the has two signs up there. There's two theories about how Stonehenge was built. One, you know, probably the historically accurate one where they dragged the stones hundreds of miles. You know, blah blah blah, post them up. And then you you walk around this corner. There's there's a, a, a foam statue of Merlin the magician, you know, <laughs> doing like his little magician, like like I don't know, um, Zool thing, where it's a casting thing. Right. And it's a, and, and the other theory, the other legend is that Merlin cast the stones and effortlessly put them in the shape of Stonehenge. And there's a, a model of, of Merlin there. Um, and it was, you know, it was this awesomely random thing that we found on the road. And it's just, it's so much, you know, I love. That's one of my favorite parts of road trips. You know, one of the things we love doing is just like that random stuff that like, oh, there's Foamhenge. We should go see that. And <laughs> how many times do you actually go see it? You know, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But like, of course you're going to go see Foamhenge. That's yeah. amazing. I would, um, I would have done that. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and, and my daughter loved it. She made a book for school. Because um, like I said, we stopped at Mount Vernon on the way home. She, and because she was missing a couple days of school, her teacher said, why don't you have her make a book and withdraw pictures and take pictures, and then she can tell the class all about her trip. And so she did. She had a big page about Mount Vernon. She loved Mount Vernon, about the wedding and about dancing with the bride and all that. The first page was, I was excited to see Foamhenge. And then she drew a picture of Foamhenge. <laughs> and so we had to make sure she knew enough about Foamhenge to say, to tell the students what it was. And, of course, her explanation was, do you know Stonehenge? It's a foam replica of it. Okay, good. A lot of kids are going to know that. Um, <laughs> that's great. You know, it, that's. I think that's awesome. I, it does make me wonder. Um, and I was thinking about this with uh, with some of the, the the monuments and things that we saw in Italy. So Stonehenge has been around for a long time. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously, right? Like the actual one, not Foamhenge. Foamhenge has been around <laughs> since two thousand four, but Stonehenge has been around. Um, it predates um, the Angles and the Saxons coming right. to the British Isles. Uh, how long has it been a tourist attraction? Like, at what point? Yeah. At what point did we start, um, like thinking? You know, we need to go as people go see this. Like, you know, right. was it just just like a thing that was like, oh, you know, there's these random stones in a field? Like, at what point did it right. transition over to being this is really cool? We need to go take a look at this. Yeah, that's that that is that's always interesting to think about. Like, you know. You know, you think about that, you think about like the pyramids or stuff like that, like when, you know, nothing that's designed specifically, like I'm thinking like an Eiffel Tower or um, you know, Mount Vernon, you know, things that are like maintained and designed for specific reasons. But like, you know, why wasn't Stonehenge ever destroyed? Like in all the years, you know, that England was developed, why was it not? Well, I know I, this, but you know, you know, it's just one of those great things like, well, you ever, I mean, you know where Stonehenge is in England, right? No. So, like, I mean, 
it's it's in the middle of damn nowhere. Like literally. Like well, so it, is Foamhenge. So it makes well, sense. Well, well, I would argue Foamhenge is closer to important things than Stonehenge is. Like Stonehenge, oh, Stonehenge is like kind of near Southampton. Yeah. Um, but it's like over in a part of England where not a whole lot happens. Like the the like Southampton is probably the closest city of any size to it. The next closest is maybe Reading. I mean, it's okay. if you know much about English geography, it's in like southwest England. Um, like there's nothing there. It would be like in it would be like if if the Statue of Liberty was in a cornfield in western New York, and people were like, "Well, why wasn't that destroyed at some point?" It's like, "Well, nobody cares about that area of okay. New York." Um, but it's no, it's an. It, I I think about this sometimes with uh, with some of the with some of the the monuments in Italy because you know they every time so okay so for instance the I, there was a a thing that popped up on the news there right before we left that in Positano which is a famous city on the Amalfi coast they've discovered uh, and excavated a roman villa that was buried in the uh the ash discharge that came from Pompeii in 79 AD Wow, and they're just about ready to like open that up and 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 have people tour it in Rome. They were building a subway line, and they stumbled across this entire like underground barracks, and so now yeah. they're going to put they're they're putting up like a basically a an archaeological site in a subway stop in Rome. But but it's like it has to be frustrating after a while because every time in a city like that that you you know try to dig in the ground you're going to hit something that's two thousand years old and someone's going to be like right. we have to preserve that it's like that that that's got to get old after a while um, and and uh, it's almost like stuff like Stonehenge and frankly even just like random stuff in the U S if we ever get to the point where people want to like memorialize things in the U S the stuff that's like out of the major cities will probably have a much better chance of sticking around long or simply because nobody's going to want that land. That's true. That's a good point. We also did see uh, the burial plot of the arm of Stonewall Jackson. <laughs> yeah, I saw that on your social media. That's, <laughs> that's God, it's, it, I can only again, imagine. It, it, well, I mean, it's basically, it, so the story goes, um, it's right by the, the site of the Battle of Chancellorsville, a huge Civil War battle. It's where he was mortally wounded. He was shot by his own men, shot in the left arm, and they had to amputate the arm. And then he was taken to another hospital where he developed, and he developed pneumonia and very quickly passed away. And because he was, I'm probably butchering this, but because he was literally, but because he was moved, um, the the doctor who amputated the arm buried it out of respect on like the the family in the family cemetery of the estate where they where they did this. And so, lo and behold. You know, General Stonewall, bear, you know, arm of Stonewall Jackson, 1863, is what's on the tombstone. I was kind of hoping it would be like on display, like Lenin. So I was a little disappointed that it was like just a tombstone and not the actual arm. <laughs> <We thought it was. laughs> I was really excited for about 10 seconds. Then I realized that it wasn't uh, the actual arm of, you know, wouldn't be able to see the arm of Stonewall can, at Jackson. At least you can say you saw the grave, right? You did, know, I did mean. see the, the grave of the arm of Stonewall Jackson. And Mount Vernon is cool. You know, very they, they've restored it very you know it's very kept up well it's beautiful grounds right on the potomac and that's just a cool place to stand in and you know you know because i don't know if this because of the 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 crowds and the way it's set up like you're very ushered through the house at at a specific time very quickly like 20 minutes on a very specific tour through the house you don't really get to stop no pictures allowed in the house tour guides are are kind of stationed throughout the house and they just kind of recycle the same the same thing over and over again. And it's a lot of, and, and we're moving and we're walking and kind of through, um, but it is still cool to kind of like walk through a doorway and think like literally George Washington was here. Like he literally yeah. stood in this point, like this is his office. This was his dining room and not like the, the, the kind of pretend way. Like he was actually here. And yeah. that's cool to think about. No, it is. I, you know, you, you obviously you get that sense in Rome too, but on a, on a much more like much longer historical scale. Um, I remember we, so the last day that we were in Italy, um, three years ago, we went to this town called Orvieto and Orvieto is like up on this hill and it's this, you like, you do this underground tour where you go into a church and they take you underneath the city and it's all these old catacombs and everything. And they're like, these have been here since like 
300 BC and the original occupants were Etruscans and you know they were at war with Rome and they held out for a year under siege and then the Romans won the siege and they came in and they killed all of them <laughs> and, and you're just thinking well man what the hell happened here you know really like what what am I standing on uh and um yeah you get that sense all the time you walk you know you're walking through the Colosseum and you're thinking you know I mean people people were in this thing watching gladiatorial combat you know literally gladiator like yeah, literally that yes, was happening yes literally and that was happening you know 1900 years ago 19 you know over that i mean it's it's crazy um when you walk through some of the pompeii is a great example like in pompeii you're walking through and there's plaster casts of people's bodies that were buried in the sulfuric ash that came down after the explosion you're just like okay yeah. um that's a little bit um yeah, that's, that's that, real. That gets real. Yeah, yeah, it, but, it does. But um, yeah, one thing completely off off of. Uh, I, I wanted to mention this about our time in Italy that I thought yeah. was interesting. So, um, uh, so my wife is um, is not one who has watched a lot of of uh, crime procedurals in, okay. in her life, and um, w- most of the places we were staying when we had television, we had to stay in at nights because of the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, all the television shows were in Italian except for one station, which was called Top Crime, and all it was was basically a bunch of of crime procedurals from the U.S. So it was like, um. In no particular order. So it was like, you know, Law and Order Los Angeles, and it was CSI Miami, and it was um, uh, Major Crimes, which was like the, the sequel to The Closer. It was yes. like it was like the the it was like the the uh, the cast of the closer. Everybody but Kira Sedgwick and okay, and so so we ended up watching all of like this was like our our nightly routine. Like Eris would go to bed and we'd have like two hours where we just watch crime procedurals. And I was like, after we did that for a couple of nights, I looked at her. I was like, this is why I stopped watching television shows because they're all the same, and it's it's fascinating, like <laughs> how how samey all of those damn shows are and you don't really notice it until you watch them all back to back to back but it's like god oh like, yeah i mean there's just there's no there's the only show that was like different at all was they had a couple of episodes of murder in the first which i don't know if you ever saw that show that, yes the the yep. one that it was Botchko's like mid 2000s thing and that was actually yep. kind of unique but everything else was basically just a carbon copy of what we had seen elsewhere and it just right. you know even even like you know the mentalist or the one where the guys immortal that i can't remember the the name of the show um but yeah i got nothing Anyway, um, I just no. it just it yeah. struck me, and I hadn't really thought of it before. But it's like, man, there there is really these are this may be the most recycled genre in all of American television, and and unfortunately, the Italians are getting it like seven nights a week. Was Cop Rock there? Was Cop Rock in the schedule? I looked for Cop Rock. I didn't <sighs> see it. No, Disapp- disappointing. Uh, so I did. Just, so, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Oh no, I was just going to uh, to to steer away from to. To steer back to my one piece of follow up, the uh, Golden Corral buffet trip. Oh yes, uh, we need to, to talk about that. Yeah, that'll be, uh, that'll be our closing to thoughts for that. today. Yes, our, our oh god, let it be a closing thought. So we <laughs> went, um, and it was. I'm going to link to the piece my friend uh, Jared Paveni wrote about this. He's the kind of uh, the subject of the food blogger. We we were doing live videos on Facebook Live of each course that we picked out. Um, our daughters picked out a course for him. I ended up steering my buffet strategy for this ended up being very heavily on the fried food um, because mm. I figured that was probably the safest. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, and, and uh, we were literally sick for four days after, afterwards really? between stomach. Really? Yeah. Between stomach and we got something and it was, it was, it was not good. And I don't know if, you know, I don't know if we have a, just a particularly bad golden corral up here. Uh, I've been told that they're they're in the south. They're a little bit better than than the one we had up here in Rochester. Um, but it was um, it, 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 it it was you know it was obviously the food was was not good. Um, and I, you know my, you know Jared wrote about this in the piece, and and, and I mentioned it. It it, it was um, it was almost it was kind of sad in a way. <laughs> Um, no, just, I, just, I, just I, kind I, of. I, I, 
Okay, it was it was very sad from the food quality perspective. But I mean you you see we paid so it was I believe for the three of us for me, my wife and my daughter it was about it was 40 bucks for the for the three all you can eat. Um buffets, which okay, not not cheap, you know, but you know, with the all you can eat there's a certain there's a certain value prospect of that. But you but you know Looking, you know, seeing the the other people who were there. I mean, obviously, Golden Corral. You know, this is this, it took an unexpected, serious turn this trip because you see like the the socioeconomic demographic that's going there, and this is a big thing. Like this, you can tell that this is not you know just something they're doing for fun or a lark. Like they're you know there there was a community college graduation that weekend nearby, and there were graduation parties there. Like graduates and families were there. And you could tell that this was kind of meaningful that they were there, and this was kind of like the, where they're going to celebrate. And, and you know, you you know, it's so in contrast to what you were talking about with the food in Italy. But you you, you just see, you know, the you know the, the 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 real lowest common denominator of the food and how it's just there. There's no fresh food. There's like iceberg lettuce and green peppers at the salad bar, and that's basically it. Um, you see, just a lot, you know, and, and, and just the emphasis on. on the cheap food and on the <coughs> excuse me on the on the on the poor quality and it was just it was you know we survived we had we 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 kind of had fun with it but the more you thought about it the more we both thought about it Jared and I were talking about it it it, it just kind of it 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 got it you know it, it got us thinking and got us angry kind of at the idea of food deserts and about what's what's around I will say the food was quite bad. Um, <laughs> You know what? What? What was do? I had. I. I. I went risky with the fried shrimp, and and I don't know if that was my smartest move. Um, what else did I have? The fried chicken was I, good. My boldest move, I think, was um getting the meatloaf. Oh wow! Yeah, that that did not go well. That was well, a bad. I mean, I'm, that, sh- I'm shocked. I'm talking to you right that, now. That that, that 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 I immediately regretted that decision. Um, I did. I did put one. Rice Krispie Treat into the nonstop river showing, uh, fountain of chocolate decadence, whatever that was, and yes. was horribly unimpressed by it. Um, was the chocolate like just low grade or, or what? Yeah, it was. It was low grade, like milk chocolate. It didn't. It. It. it, it so. If you've ever been to a fondue place or like a melting pot or like a real like fondue place and you get the melted chocolate and it kind of holds that kind of thick consistency when you dip it in and there's like there's this, there's like substance there. There's like this, you know, this, this was the opposite of that. This, this was, was like, like this was like when you melt a Hershey bar in the microwave and <laughs> pour it on something. Right? It, it, yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. It was just there was just a whole lot. It was just a whole lot of nothing to it, and it was. Um, so yeah, um, so we, that's not an experience we'll be repeating anytime soon. Yeah. But uh, and there was really no strategy. You know, when we talked about strategy last time, there was no strategy around that buffet. That was just it's. Ooh, ooh. I think I've always, you know, it's funny because we always talk about the bad eating habits of Americans, certain Americans. You know, I mean, uh, you know, look, I grew up in a in a, a half Italian household, and uh, you know. I'm not going to say that, you know, I mean, I, I also grew up in the Midwest, so I certainly wasn't immune to the uh, the culture of cheap food that didn't have a lot of flavor. Like that was, that's kind of a common thing in Indiana in general. But, okay. but I often wonder from a cultural perspective, like this stuff didn't happen in a vacuum. Like where did it all really come from? Where Where did this idea that a place like Golden Corral or a place like, Ryan's Steakhouse or a place like Sirloin Stockade or, or Ponderosa or, you know, or these like, at what point did that become acceptable? Um, like, I mean, some of it, I think, you know, we have to to keep in mind, like the idea of the idea of good tasting food uh, being available to people is, is, not that normal, particularly among a lot of people who lived in pre- predominantly rural communities. Like a lot of those people were eating whatever happened to be available at the time. Right. Like if right. all we have is potatoes, all we're having for dinner is potatoes. Like there's no meat. Right. Or right. if all we have is this, you know, slightly weather beaten pig, we're going to chop that pig up and eat it, even if it's well past its prime as an actual food source. Um mm-hmm. You know, and and I think that you know it's it's 
it's easy to to scoff at places like Golden Corral, and I think they deserve as much scoffing as as uh, as we can afford yeah. them. But I do think, from an anthropological perspective, it's interesting to think about the concept of like where, like, what was it that allowed these places to take hold culturally? Because a lot of people, yeah. for a lot of people. Um, the the flavor of the food is subordinate to the amount of money that they didn't spend on eating it. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and that's a really like that. There's that's something that'll you know. Um, it's it's we feel culturally armed enough to laugh about, but I think it's interesting that it even exists in the first place. And 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 thinking about where it comes from is something that I think we should all do. Yeah, I mean the you know kind of wrap this up. I, I feel like the idea of you know, the, the culture of food in a country, and especially in America, is really something, you know, I'm sure it's been researched and written about, and I would love, you know, to read about it. If you have suggestions, please let, let us know about that. Um, because I was thinking about this as you, when you were talking about the food in Italy, like, why is it that the, you know, why is it that the food in Italy is universally so good? Is it the ingredients? Is it the care? Is it the culture of food surrounding it? Is it, do they have like magical cooking techniques that we don't have here? You know, I'm, I'm really, you know, that's something that's really kind of interesting to me and kind of like in, in comparing and contrasting that well, to the I, U to, to our, I think I, I do think with Italy and, and France as well, I think part of it is, um, the, you know, the, the meal is considered to be an important social event, uh, every day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, I think a lot of it comes down to the the cultural history of individual peoples and you know the the Latin peoples dating back to the Roman Empire consistently utilized um meals as not just a, a you know a pattern of sustenance but they also used it as a, a social event and I think when when you invest food with a social importance, it it generally rises to a higher level. And you know, I think you know it's funny because it's not like Italian food as we know it today has been around forever. You know, I mean, pasta, you know, is 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 a consistent um, dish that appears in Italy. I mean, like noodles are not they they were not eaten in roman times like that mm-hmm. was you know that was something that came you know in the in the middle ages um you know i mean i talked about amalfi and how like the lemons are ama- amazing there the tomatoes are amazing there neither of those crops is native to that area right tomatoes came from mexico they they you know that when when the when the ships coming back from the new world brought tomatoes back and they were like giving tomatoes to, uh, you know, to the Spanish and then the Italians, people thought that tomatoes were poisonous Wow! Be- um, because they-, they would slice them up and they would put them on their plate and then the people would like get sick. And mm. what was actually happening was the acid from the tomatoes was leaching lead out of the, the, the plates that oh, they really? were eating them off of. Yes, absolutely. Oh, wow. Lemons come from, like, the Levant. I mean, they come from oh. Israel and from Arabia and places like that. Um, but, you know, the those people were able to take those things and and things like garlic and, and you know, and other, other flavorful things and turn them into um, hearty meals that had a lot of flavor. And I, and I think, you know, in, in America... You know, our our founding culture in America was English, and right. our second founding culture was basically German. Uh, mm-hmm. Neither of those places is known for particularly flavorful cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, like the the spices and the methodology of preparing the food is very very basic. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and in fact, you know, I mean, we have a lot of German descendants here in, in Indiana and a lot of those people um, my mom's family kind of falls into this equation to some degree even though they they, like, they weren't really specifically German in, in heritage but they just didn't spice their food they didn't really you know they mean they, their, their cooking methodologies were very basic the, 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 the state pie here in Indiana is the sugar cream pie which is basically flavorless 
Um, <laughs> and my wife is like shaking her head because she she actually bakes a really good sugar cream pie. But mo- I mean, it's <laughs> there's just not a lot of flavor to it. And so, I, you know, I do think that that Midwestern ethic uh, and and the 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 food traditions passed down by that particular stock of people lends itself to the sort of mass consumption. Uh, places like Golden Corral, who capitalize on that combined with this kind of blue-collar frugality that a lot of Americans feel like they need right. to embrace. And, and so you end up with what is basically a, a food apocalypse. <laughs> it was a food apocalypse, Jesus. <laughs> I'm glad you're still with us. I Thank really you. Like I am glad. I, I, I am too. So uh, so I think that should do it for uh, for, our, yes. for our return, uh, for, for our first episode of Season 2. Thank you all for listening. Uh, please, uh, you can subscribe on iTunes. You can listen on Stitcher. Um, you can our, our, the RSS feed is available too. Show notes are at sportsmediaguy.com. At the flip side, um, we're going to be back on our regular summer schedule. Yep. And uh, again, give us topics, give us ideas, and and don't give us Golden Corral. Please, God, no Golden Corral. <laughs> anyway, we'll uh, right. for Brian. I'm Galen. We'll uh, we'll catch you folks on the flip side. Thanks for listening. So long, everybody. Bye.